Welcome back to the Unrepresentative School Podcast. Where have we been, Nick? Uh, an extra week off. What's happened? I have been hard at work doing a lot of heavy legal research. I've become a scholar, essentially. You have a hero and a scholar. A hero and a scholar. A hero of sorts. I think the phrase is a gentleman and a scholar. There you go. That's but well, a hero, sure. If you want to give yourself that title. I don't. I have no idea what phrase you're referring to. I was just saying I was a hero and a scholar. Right? No, you don't know the phrase. Oh, you're a gentleman and a no, scholar. I absolutely do know that. Yeah. Sounds about. To That's 100 percent what I was trying to say. Um, but you've been frolicking among Central Australia, haven't you? I wouldn't say frolicking. I'd say uh, doing vital work for this state. And and thank you for it, Rob. As a as a citizen of this state, um, 100 percent thank you for it. But it no seems worries, like mate. it was a very nice trip. Um, beautiful part of the world, obviously. Yeah, gorgeous out there. Great country out there, I tell you. Yeah, I, I. That's the thing I feel like I need to do is there's so much of like WA I haven't seen, um, especially up north yeah. and stuff, and it's just like beautiful, just like so cool. So Nick, I, I fear, not fear. I think that you're planning to live a long life, right? You fear I'm planning to live a long life. <laughs> oh, I think you're planning to live a long life, and um, dare I say that. Those exploration of the uh, of the northwest of this country should maybe be done in your later years. I think you know, try and tick That's off true. your Parises and your Amsterdams and your Tokyo. Oh, and I am, yeah, yeah. And then you can you you'll you'll get to Karatha eventually, mate. Don't worry. Yeah. Do you think it's a, it's a case in those foreign cities that we've heard so much about and we see on the news and all that? And it's the where the, the cool people live as well. Exactly. Yeah, the influencers live. <laughs> Do you think it's all a bit superficial and the kind of real gem is is was back home all to begin with? Oh, and you know, fires and billies and uh, you know, sunrises. Yeah. And uh, frost on your bonnet on your windscreen exactly. and stuff like that. Yeah, some of the smaller things in life. Yeah. Well, I mean, each to their own, etc. Yeah. Um. But Nick, uh, dare I say, I think you're not the most rugged of individuals. How dare you? And I, I think you're a little more rugged. suited to the the city lifestyle. I know I started out by saying I was a scholar, but I'm also, I happen to be a very rugged scholar. <laughs> I'm like those monks from like the 10th century who like had like doctrinal research or whatever, but also like were like huge and like fought with like swords and stuff. Like the warrior monks. I'm like one of those guys. Okay. Like I, I can, you know, like there's the age old saying the pen and the sword. I kind of am the pen and the sword. Really? <laughs> okay. <laughs> Absolutely not. I, just on what we were saying before as well, though, I read a, a half of a book because, um, you know, my attention span is, is rubbish like the rest of yeah, us yeah. about um, how important awe is for like our, our lives and how what? like. Getting- awe is in like iron ore. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was Twiggy Forrest's autobiography. <laughs> um, no, no, or A W E, as in awesome. Ah, um, oh, okay. Yeah, there were like a sense of awe by like going for a swim in the ocean or like looking at the yeah. moon is like so important for like well being in your life and like um, having a good perspective on the world because yeah, right. to feel smaller than something. 
and part of something huge and amazing and mysterious um, yeah. that helps you find your own place in the world and make sense of it all. Oh, well, if you want to feel smaller than something, just go to your local gym. <laughs> God, I, I'm you can go get back. some awe there, for sure. Some awe and some awe, maybe. <laughs> all right, enough of that nonsense, Rob. Yeah, what, what's our yarn today, mate? Um, well, I, I fear we must discuss um, the voice campaign. And you fear that as well. Well, I, I well, fear that's the way because, it's going, hey? Yeah, I, I don't want to... I don't want to join the kind of um, the media train and say it's doomed to fail kind of stuff, but it's no it's no mystery that support is dwindling. Oh yeah, it, there was a mystery about that initially, but now that mystery is gone. Yeah, I mean, for context, most of the polls started out at the start of year about like sixty eight percent thereabouts, and now most of the polls are going down to about 50%. That yeah. is, yes, Interesting. Um, support. So there's quite a substantial drop there that's uh, beyond the realm of, like, statistical anomaly. For sure. I think my um, my perspective, you know, you can talk about polls and stuff, but uh, what I consider to be uh, impactful is the poll of Rob. I've now discovered people that I know and, uh, you know, conduct... Uh, life with that yes. would vote no. That's that's how I just talk about my friends as well. The people I conduct life with. <laughs> um, so that that's been a change because I think for the first six months of this year I hadn't met anyone that would yeah, vote no, I know and now mean. I know people that would not vote no. Uh, and I also have seen a similar thing where I kind of assumed and for, I felt like that was what it was at the start, which was like all my friends, like you know, same age and sort of similar yeah. circumstances as me. Um, are just like obviously like yes supporters because um, yep. everyone just thought it was going to be a no-brainer and would pass so easily. But now there is like that kind of people like um, even though they might be voting yes, they're like oh, but yo know, that that the no campaign makes a good point or oh, but it doesn't matter because it's going to fail anyway or like oh, but like it's not even a big deal because it's not actually going to do anything for First Nations people. Yeah. Um. So I think yeah, kind of the the sense of doubt and also the seeds of misinformation. Um, have start to spread. Yeah. So I think, yeah. In There's the short a sense of, it, of pessimism knocking about for sure. The short of it is that like our, the numbers in the polls reflect our, clearly our like general sense of how things are going. Yeah. But Nick, why is the question here? So this has gone from, as, as you said earlier, a no brainer, something that seemingly everyone would just kind of vote yes for and it'll be okay to now... Uh, let's call it a very tightly contested uh, referendum. And I yeah. think as we know from tightly contested referendums, they don't usually win. Yeah, I mean, the whole system is designed to make those ones fail, essentially. It's only designed to pick things up that everyone agrees on in a kind of very closer to unanimous kind of way. Well, why is the big question, isn't it, Rob? You can't go scientific about these things. Um, there's no way in such a complicated system to possibly ascribe a kind of proportionality to all the different things that have fucked yeah. up this campaign but what's so huge and substantial and that we can't possibly not talk about first is the role of the media right yeah for sure i think that's uh clearly been a major part and uh media has picked up on the effectiveness of misinformation in the no campaign particularly those uh those in the media that would propose to uh 
support the no campaign have picked up on the key points of misinformation which are digging through into into the minds of people and running that into the ground and making sure that it gets into people's minds yeah absolutely and just like it's not hard at all to find examples of in the media and even like there was that racist ad in the afr that got pulled um so it's just they're kind of in the light of day so easy to see and i think now especially something that's kind of happened a little bit under the radar over the past few years um but is potentially hugely significant is News Corp's expansion into like rural Queensland, New South Wales with their digital print empire. Yep. Um, and, you know, obviously, as we said before, it's hard to know how effective these things actually are. But with such control, incumbent like control over the media there and this push into like rural space where obviously a lot of those people are more likely to vote no anyway that might be hugely significant. And News Corp is not shy about literally just like peddling no stuff. Yeah, well, <laughs> they're not shy at all about that. No, no yeah. Oh, they're quite transparent. Yeah. Really. So, you know, you got to give them credit for that at least, I guess. Uh, also, the uh, this isn't a development of the last few years, but uh, the rise of social media and its impact on how politics is conducted in let's just call it the 21st century, even though social media didn't really knock about for the first yeah, couple re- of years really in the 21st century. the last century. decade and a half, I guess. Yeah, but the last decade and a half, for sure, we've seen how effective social media and particularly misinformation has um, been on politics worldwide, yeah, particularly in the Anglosphere, you know, here in the US and yeah. the UK. Absolutely. And, like, I think a lot of that stuff about spreading misinformation, spreading lies gets lost in this debate about free speech and yeah. to what extent like the law or whatever regulates if we can tell a lie or not. Whereas like the real issue is that it's now become so much easier to tell a lie to a lot of people yeah. because of social media and just the kind of very little regulation that government and also the social media companies who tend to regulate this stuff a lot more anyway than government yeah. um, on just being able to say whatever you want to such a large audience. So I think that stuff has been in this campaign, as in things like the 2016 election in the US, so influential. It's also, uh, particularly for this campaign, and also, I don't know, you can tie it a little bit to, you know, the Brexit vote and Trump and stuff like that. Uh, when when the issues become more uh, about social and feelings and stuff like that, and... The Yes campaign, well, not the Yes, the voice was always going to be a lot about how you feel about it. That is where misinformation can breed very easily and very nastily as well. Uh, Yeah, I think that's so true, Rob. And, like, there is such an easy emotion to go for for the No campaign because with all these um, kind of people who are dissatisfied with the political system as it stands anyway, people who are, like, poorer... um, you know, less well-educated, it's so easy to grab onto that emotion of like, well... The elites. Yeah. Is this like another project of the elites to give First Nations people like special treatment? Where's my special treatment? I think that's such... It becomes such an easier narrative to sell all of the no propaganda when that feeling already exists. And like social media is perfect for that, hey? Yeah. And it's also like... I know a lot of... I know some people that are, you know, not your stereotypical no voter in that they just, you know, 
how do I put this lightly? <laughs> they don't Idiots. believe they don't believe in you know improving Aboriginal people's lives. Let's say, yeah, uh, there are a lot of people in No Vote that think that uh, think that the the voice or whatever body it will be will be made up of educated people that don't under- understand the issues that face uh, you know rural and remote Aboriginal people. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's some nuance there, but I just don't understand why a voice of a body that is literally set up for the express purpose of trying to improve Aboriginal people's lives in Australia has come under this much scrutiny. Yeah. I mean, you know, I feel like we, we don't even have to get into the, the merit, the relative merits of all these points. Cause yeah. we have before we know, obviously there, it, it should be a no brainer. Um, maybe is what we should say but i think in terms of the social media like the guardian did a lot of uh reporting early on i remember about facebook pages that the no campaign had set up uh that like appear neutral uh, like appear to just be like neutral kind of camp um catch up source um sources about the, the campaign but are actually like controlled by no campaigners yeah so and you know to what extent like how, how kind of large that is or if that was just like a kind of one-off thing i don't i don't know but that's very reminiscent of the 2016 u.s campaign republican um tactics about using social media in that like quite overtly dishonest way to target people who are going to be like the most effective for the campaign um so quite dishonest um quite sinister but quite effective i guess yeah it uh very effective is the main point. Um, and there is growing cynicism among media organisations and uh, people who, like me and you, that uh, support the Yes campaign uh, about its chances. And I think that that's also having an effect on the Yes campaign in and of yeah. itself. Like, There's more narrative about how poorly the Yes campaign is doing rather than... Uh, you know, the misinformation of the no campaign and what yes campaign actually wants to put out there. Yeah, it's so hard to know, again, how this stuff works. But, yeah, it's not a science, really. It's like kind of an art winning a campaign like this. Yeah. And if that's, if there's that sense of, like, fear or pessimism um, or that things are going really badly among, like, the people who are trying to work hard to campaign for yes, it's going to trickle down to all the volunteers and all the supporters um, so that I think would also make a difference. So I, I think there is that kind of public sense that it has tipped really far away from the yes campaign. And that just has like a negative feedback loop, I guess. Right. Yeah, for sure. As I said, like the, the media narrative around the yes campaign isn't actually about the yes campaign. It's about the flaws of the yes campaign, uh, which plays into the no, no campaign so well. And as uh, as I said earlier, as the more derision and the more um, uncertainty that arises before the actual referendum, the more people that are going to vote no. Yeah, exactly. And like I think I said to you before the show, it it sucks that it feels like that's what even the kind of honest, and you know I'm just going to say that <laughs> honest media organisations um, have to say about the campaign now. They have to say like, oh, the, what's the yes campaign not doing well enough? Um, it feel, it sucks that's what they have to report on in an effort to appear kind of neutral when in reality it's just is it is it the yes campaign doing badly or is it the profound 
influence in the media that the No campaign has utilized and just the the depths of dishonesty they're willing to go to in order to get a successful political campaign. I mean, I, I feel like it's probably the latter, but it sucks that, like, you know, news, even other news sources like the ABC have to do the other reporting on how yeah. bad the Yes campaign is. For sure. Uh, and in a weird way, it points to the skills of the No campaign to understand that uh, they don't have to win this campaign. They just have to, you know, create derision and allow for history to run its course, essentially, in that, you know, the base position is or was always going to be no, if that makes sense. You know, if you want to change the con- constitution, people are generally going to say no to it until they're convinced otherwise. Yeah, it's, it's, if it ain't broke, don't fix it adage, yeah. I guess. And there's also, you know, all the uh, rules that are baked in that support uh, a no vote in any referenda in yes, Australia. Yes, it's so true. Um, it's so hard to do that. I mean, uh, what I've written here, Rob, is just like overall, it's profoundly dishonest, the no campaign. I don't think like, you know, people who are reasonable um, and kind of know a lot about this stuff would disagree with that, but dangerously effective um, against the S campaign. Um, and I was thinking, I was like, is that just like a, are we saying that just because that's a reflection of our worldview and because we obviously want the yes campaign to succeed a lot and we share that sense of pessimism and and anger that it's doing so badly or is that you know like more objective um and if something was going the other way if these for example the yes campaign was being very dishonest we would point that out as well yeah it's hard to know but it is hard to know and i think uh like a lot of things in life nick it's probably just a product of you know something something in between those two Polar extremes. I think you're so right. And like, at the end of the day, what can you do but argue the things you believe in? Yeah. And continue the negative feedback loop into the Yes campaign. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> God, yeah. it's doing poorly. <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, yeah. Well, sad moment. But I mean, you know, never say never. Um, never say never. And uh, we are so pessimistic about the chances now. And we're at 50, 45, 50%. Yes. So... You know, maybe if, if the mood lifts a little bit. Mm, mm. Um, you know, they could have a big stumble on the no campaign side. Um, some stuff could start to cut through. There could be an issue in the polls. It could just get over the line at just above 50%, um, just because all the states just scrape above 50, or yep. most of them do. We never know. But I think as a, you know, reflecting on the campaign at this moment, it's true that no has been very, very dishonest, but that's been very effective. Yep. Which is a very sh- a bit of a shame. Yeah, it is a shame, Nick. Um, but I guess kind of brings us to our next topic, right? What do you think, Nick? Do you think this is the start or the end of history? And it has to be one of those things. You must pick one. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is, the, what is the end of history, Rob? Uh, well, our mate Francis Fukuyama. One of the one great of, academics. I tell you, the amount of times I've heard that bloke's name, he's actually done quite well for himself by having such a shit take 30 years ago. I know, yeah. I swear there's people like that who just like get famous for making the absolute worst take, but then that just kind of plays into their hands. They're yeah. winning from that. Exactly. If you don't, if you guys don't know what we're talking about, little IR nerd that we are. Yeah. Um, Francis Fukuyama wrote a thesis after the end of the Cold War, basically saying this is the end of history because uh, capitalism won the war, the righteous war against communism. Yes. 
and God bless. Uh, everyone's going to now get along with each other. Uh, the world's going to economically develop, and it's just going to be fantastic for the rest of history. Yeah. What happened in the 30 years after that thesis? Uh, well, 9-11, climate change, fucking whole bunch of shit, yeah, the rise of China as a major communist. Yeah. So, yeah, it wasn't quite the end of history, as predicted. Yeah. Uh, but it was a good try. I, I mean, there's something... I think he was speaking as well. Like, I don't want to... Um, I actually haven't read his whole... I think no. I read the article. I think he read a whole book on it as well, though. I think I, I read the abstract. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I think he had, he did have a little bit of a more careful analysis about, like... Um, I think he was trying to say that history does trend upwards. And because of things like social progress um, and, like, technology, things objectively like extremely likely to continue to trend upwards even though even if they have dips and then go back up yeah um and maybe there's some truth to that right like i'm trying to think of everything now technology is like neutral i don't think technology inherently makes anything better or worse yeah but it has the capacity to make a lot of things better sure um so i think that in itself could make the world a much better place as time goes on you could also say uh the living standards of the average human being has probably increased in that time just with the rise of China and India and the populations of those places. Yeah. I mean, China did so much in that this last 30 years to get a huge amount of people out of poverty. Yeah. Um, and there's obviously a lot of people in poverty still in Africa and I think a lot of India as well and still a lot of China and other parts of the world. Oh, but yeah, for sure. Yeah. If, it, you're not, if you're not on the uh, east coast, if you're not on the coastal regions of China, it's still very poor. Yeah, de- definitely. Um, and I think a lot of that stuff as well, like, so I don't want to harken back on, um, voice type content, but a lot of people, um, people who are fucking idiots make the point about like, oh, you know, colonialism in Australia was so bad, but at least we've brought technology and society to, to the first nations people. But that just like ignores, it just like depends on what kind of measure of like well-being you want to use for people. Yeah. If you want to just talk about life satisfaction, which is something they do in economics all the time, we have no idea how what levels of life satisfaction were in First Nations communities back before the West ever came here. So to say that they're objectively better off is, I, I think, not correct. It's we don't a, know that. It's a very uh, neo-colonial slash uh, Eurocentric way of looking at uh, life and well-being in life. Uh, and... Unfortunately, that's just, it's the way of the world now that everything is measured through economic development and uh, whatever pleasures of life you can draw from that, which might not necessarily be uh, accurate. Yeah, exactly. Um, And like, look look at what else makes up your well-being, especially after you get kind of like a, a past a base level of subsistence. Um, for p- even people like you or me in developed countries, what does well-being mean to us in this kind of um, society? Yeah. I, yeah, I feel like, would I be a lot happier if um, I felt like our society was like working, re- like cared about <laughs> the poorer people in society? Like there was a bit more of a community feeling. There was, without sounding too much of a kind of um, too pretentious, if there was like an ideology where everyone cared, like the community cared about the community um, we wanted to make the world a better place rather than just like private ownership 
Making as many clans as possible. Yeah, looking after me and my family and everyone else can fuck off, which it feels like to some extent it's kind of part of the thing now. Yeah. So. Well, it's difficult, Nick, but I, I guess I want to challenge that end of history thesis uh, 30 years on. Yeah. Uh, and I reckon, Nick, I don't know about you, but I reckon we're in the minx, minxed? You minx. <laughs> of major change in the international system right now. Uh, I think the two primary causes of this, climate change, there's going to be so much change to uh, arable land, economic opportunity, purely just on climate alone, that we'll see huge shifts in what powers are big in Europe, Asia, etc. So that's going to change a lot in the international system and it probably won't be in favour of... Uh, the neoliberal uh, style that we've had for the last 30 years, you know, li- neoliberal, uh, liberal democracies, NATO, those that kind of area, right? So that's going to change. And also we're seeing just economic rise of uh, former global south, global south countries and like former colonies, so China, India, and we're increasingly seeing with India not exactly the, that much keenness on democracy. Yeah. So there'll be there'll be significant change, and I think it's going to tr- trend away from democratic values and uh, how we know the world now in in the global north. Yeah, I not not to make this a huge thing, but I've been listening to electron systems and now like complicated systems analysis, which is like a whole field of like science and so- sociology, um, social science, really interesting. But like the one of the big points that comes out of that is like complicated systems like. Um, the world order and international relations um, are to some extent stable, um, but also in a constant state of flux as well. Um, So it's just not true that in complicated systems, you see a trend towards everything becoming perfectly stable. Um, It tends to be in a constant state of flux. So, and like we see that all the time throughout history, things always change. So I think in terms of the, and like, yeah, you know, this is kind of pretty stupid to argue to begin with in terms of that everything is trending toward democracy, capitalism. Obviously, that's not true. And I think that in itself serves the interests of people who benefit from capitalism and democracy yep. um, because it's trying to protect that order and kind of underwrite a lot of the history of contestation that happened around um, that those ideologies and stuff. Absolutely. And I think, um, you know, there's a reason why uh, this order that we have now has come into being and empires always still look after their interests. No matter how friendly they seem on the face, empires are always concerned about their interests. And that might be a very realis- realist way of looking at things. But the US has got uh, a lot of history on its side of not, not favouring democracy and uh, just ensuring that its own interests in any region are uh, secured. Look at Chile, look at Indonesia, look at all of the Caribbean during the Cold War. Mm, mm, mm. So there's 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 evidence for this. Uh, and, you know, I think a lot of countries like China in particular are using that evidence of uh, US not exactly, uh, you know, acting in the way that it says it acts, uh, of continued contestation around uh, the international system and the international order. And I, quite frankly, I, I can't see how climate change in particular doesn't change... Uh, who has the resources that will make them the most powerful countries in the future? 
Absolutely. And even, you know, if you do, you don't even have to look on an international relations kind of um, perspective to see that things are changing and things are being contested. Like, look within countries. Um, even since we've started this podcast, we've talked about um, a kind of increasing consciousness about the issue of wealth inequality and kind of the effects of, of neoliberalism or late capitalism, whatever. I think that's becoming much more contested even though it's so difficult to start from a base that just, you know, didn't even acknowledge that it was an issue. Yeah. Um, so I think within countries as well, you're seeing great change and like, look at the U S look at the UK, all of these old societies that were supposed to be the pinnacle of, according to this, um, end of history thesis, the pinnacle of human development. Look at how they look at how the mighty have fallen essentially. Yeah. Well, <laughs> uh, in the next 10 years, Poland will, uh, overtake, the uk in terms of living standards at their current growth rates yeah god there's just so much profoundly wrong with that country isn't there there's a lot wrong there so uh maybe that's another point that might see the as i'm coining it now the start of history beginning uh the slow decay of neoliberalism i think that's very clear now right the countries that have gone most aggressively into neoliberalism namely the us and the uk are now starting to see that I think the constant growth without caring about the bottom 50% of society has now hit a wall, dare I say. Yeah, essentially the trickle down, it was was a myth. Yeah, shock and horror. Yeah, it's that simple. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I think so. Um, And even separate from that kind of Western experience, um, the experience of China, countries like China as well, who have done... You know, tried to use different models to lift themselves out of po- out of poverty, essentially, um, and to encourage their own development. Are also seeing struggles like China's growth rate is really slowing down. Yeah, the effects of climate change on China are quite devastating. Um, it's having to contend with how it keeps its political system alive in light of its lower growth. Now, um, it's got things like Taiwan to think about. Um, it's also dealing with its own economic inequality issues, which hundred percent. Uh, might not bubble to the surface as aggressively just because of the nature of one-party states compared to democracies. But uh, I assure you, Nick, that while there are a lot of rich people in China, I don't think that the people that see all that wealth going to the few will be too happy, particularly in a communist system. No, no. <laughs> yeah, very good. Um, and I guess the last thing I, I might say as well is that that narrative of like things are fine don't look away has also like infiltrated our personal lives and like what what the system says we should think about the world is like which is essentially just don't worry focus on yourself um and like at the end of the day you know you don't have to worry about war you don't have to worry about society falling apart you don't have to worry about advocating for your interests or the interests of your community because like even though there's some small things might change you have the benefit of living in a society that's free and fair and whatever yeah um but you know is that really the case like i I think you know individual agency is something that's so important and has such a such an impact on the world but for people in countries like this who've been told essentially not to worry about it for the past 50 years or so um maybe maybe it's time to develop a greater consciousness so to speak in in kind of that that marx lenist kind of yeah sure thing, idea you know or if you want you can just continue to sleepwalk through history which is what i'll be doing 
For the and, record. Yeah, for the record, that is absolutely what I'm doing. I'm busy. Yeah, well, this, this, all this stuff is great, but I'm actually kind of busy for the rest of the day. Yeah, so. yeah. i got to scroll TikTok for six hours yeah, after this. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Might do some gaming, actually. <laughs> um, well, anyway, that was an interesting discussion. Yeah, well, and I guess speaking of scrolling TikTok, we don't have TikTok because... But we should. But yeah, maybe. Uh, but we do have like Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. X. Oh, X. Uh at Unrepresented Phil on the first three and at Swill Podcast on the last one. And um, we hope you have a great week. Um, stay out of trouble. Stay out of trouble. <laughs>